0: Hello, my name is Dr. Anika Prather, and welcome to Reclaiming Our Canon. As you know, every time I talk about this story, every time I share these new nuggets that I keep discovering, I always try to bring it back to how this is our shared story. This is our shared heritage. There is no division here. Uh, There's also no covering over of history in order to make people feel comfortable. Truth is shared here, but I like to package it in love and grace and with a spirit and a heart of koinonia or Christian unity. So I hope you can receive that perspective. Today I have a new story I want to tell you and I'm calling it narrative of hope. I've been sharing the story around lately, and I'm excited to be able to share it with my listeners as a way to kind of preserve it and to keep it so that anytime you can return back to this page and hear this story over and over and share it with others. And it is my hope that as you hear it, your whole perspective on classical learning will change. Your whole perspective on how to teach history will change. And most importantly, your whole perspective on America will change. Why am I interested in changing our perspectives on America? I'm not interested in painting a picture of America that has it as this great, flawless, magical place, that has always believed that all men are created equal. I'm not interested in sharing that type of false narrative. I'm also not interested in sharing the story that America is not for me or for my ancestors and that there's a story that makes it seem as if there has not been an effort to bring people of color to be a participant in our democracy. There is a story about that. And I'm seeking to share that, not to hide other stories, not to elevate it above everyone else, but just to give you another way of thinking about this American story. So I'm going to start by talking about ancient Africa a little bit. I always start in Africa. For me, that's where the story begins. My history, my story does not begin in America. It does not begin with slavery. It begins in ancient African civilizations and empires. And today I'm going to start off with Kush, that great African empire that spanned the entire continent. And you also may think of it as Ethiopia, not Ethiopia, that's limited to the Eastern part of Africa, but I'm talking about the great civilization of Ethiopia that was also called Kush that spanned the continent of Africa. And the name Kush means dark or black. The word Ethiopia means burned skin. And if you read from like historians such as Herodotus, you would hear him call the people of Ethiopia these beautiful black skinned people. In our country, we have come to think of the word black as something negative, as something bad, because of how the media has painted it so that the good guy is always dressed in white, and the bad guy is always dressed in black, and black is seen as something horrible. But that's not how it was in the classical time period. I was so excited when I unveiled this to my students at Howard University, when they could see these historians think of the word black as something that is beautiful. I think of the onyx stone. I think of beauty when I think of black. And so in ancient Africa, in the empire of Ethiopia or Kush, there was a man named Terence. Now I'm not sure what his African name was, but he was sold into slavery in ancient Rome. And his name was Terence. And when he was brought into ancient Rome, his master, who was of the upper aristocracy, uh, noticed how intelligent he was. Now, oftentimes when you hear stories like this of Africans being brought into Western culture, there are some, Phyllis Wheatley has a similar story. You, are, you will sometimes hear the writer of that story say, and the master noticed how intelligent they were. Can we stop right there for a minute? Sometimes there's a misunderstanding that Africa had no intellectual tradition, that it was just kind of this blank slate of uncivilized people, no different than the animals that dwell there. And that somehow coming into Western culture, oftentimes through slavery, that is when we became civilized. That is when we developed an intellectual tradition, but I want to give you another thought through the African folk tales, the Adinkra symbols and all of Egyptian history tells you that there was an intellectual tradition on the continent of Africa. There was a literacy there. There was an exchange of ideas going on there. When African people came into Western culture, the only thing, That was a challenge for them was that they just didn't know the language and not knowing the language does not equate with being unintelligent. So, for example, me with three masters and a doctorate, if I went into a foreign country such as France and I do not know French, even though I took French in high school, but we can blame that on the teacher. (laughs) Uh, No one should think that I'm inferior just because I cannot speak French. Now, I would find help. Someone would help me navigate my way there. They would probably help uh, interpret for me. But when you have a people brought into Western culture and they're not provided that support, of course, they're going to struggle. Of course, they may even look unintelligent. They may even look uncivilized according to the standards of that culture because there's a frustration with being in a foreign land taken from your homeland and everything you knew and being plopped out in another foreign land with no access to the literacy. But Terence's master was very different in that he said, oh, all I have to do is just teach you the language and you'll be okay. And so his master gave him a classical education. He learned Latin, he learned Greek, he read classics. He was drawn to Greek tragedy. And then from that, he began to write his own creative works, his own plays. It wasn't long after that, that Terence's master freed him. And Terence's plays became some of the most popular plays of his time, right up there with Plautus. And Terence found himself so well appreciated for his plays, that he was invited to join the Scipionic circle, which Scipio started it as a way to invite politicians, artists, educators, philosophers um, to join in these circles where they would have like a Socratic dialogue around culture, history, politics, art, and they would share together. And Terence was a part of that. Terence was also invited into the royal court. He was friends with some of the very people who defeated Hannibal. And those generals and those uh, po- uh, political and military leaders would actually provide funding for Terence's plays to be performed. Terence dies at around in his late 20s, early 30s. We think he had a daughter and we believe that he was very wealthy when he died. We don't know if he died in a shipwreck or from an illness. And we would think that his plays would die too, but they didn't. His plays demonstrated such a mastery of Latin that they were used in schools to be read in order to learn the best way to speak and write Latin. And it didn't stop there. Fast forward hundreds of years later and Terrence's plays find their space in early American schools as like a textbook way to read and study, the proper way to write and speak Latin. And they were in early American schools. Can you imagine? An ancient African playwright's plays are part of early American education. Not for black people, because we were enslaved and educating us was illegal, but our founding fathers read his plays. There's a letter by John Adams written to his son, and he's telling his son, Son, in order to best master Latin, read the plays of Terence. They provide the best example for how to speak and write the language. And that is how Phyllis Wheatley came to know about Terence. Her masters, like Terence's master, were also unique. Realizing her intelligence, which as I've explained to you before, she already had it. It wasn't, she didn't become intelligent because she came into Western culture. She didn't become civilized because she came into Western culture. She already had it when she came in. And so her masters noticed this intelligence. And they, like Terrence's masters, realized, let's just make her literate in our language. In the foundational language of Latin and Greek and in English language as well. And they educated her classically right along with her, their children. And in about 18 months, she was only between seven and 10 years old. And in 18 months, she mastered English, Latin, and Greek. And like Terence, she began to translate that experience into creative writing, where she would write poems, where they were littered with various references to the classics. And so this is very interesting to me. We see this pattern, right? And I encourage you to look up this story. So to explain what I mean more, I want to read just a little bit of how Phyllis Wheatley would use the study of classics and interweave it to kind of tell her story her she was inspired to write by classics as a way to tell her story there's a poem that I love that she wrote called Niobe in distress for her children slain by Apollo and as you know this is from Ovid's Metamorphosis okay and she's telling the story but imagine that she's telling the story as a way to tell about of her pain of being taken away from her own parents or her parents or her family losing her Let's see if I can find it. Um, seven sprightly sons the royal bed adorn. Seven daughters, beauteous as the rising morn. As when aurora fills the ravished sight and decks the orient realms with rosy light. From their bright eyes, the living splendors play. Nor can beholders bear the flashing ray. This is her describing Niobe's children. Children, Wherever, Niobe, thou turnst thine eyes, new beauties kindle and new joys arise. But thou hadst far the happier mother proved if this fair offspring had been less beloved. What if their charms exceed Aurora's tent? No word could tell them and no pencil paint. Thy love too vehement hastens to destroy each blooming maid and each celestial boy. This is Phyllis Wheatley's poetry inspired by a Greek myth. There's more. She would also write poems about her experience coming from Africa into America. And many people have read her poetry and think she is talking against Africa. But I believe that she was trying to hide her feelings. I often sometimes wonder if her poetry was sarcastic, basically sarcastically repeating what she's heard white people say about black people and about Africa and about her faith and about her existence, about people being under the illusion that somehow slavery rescued black people from pagan Africa. And she would write these poems. And somehow these, these poems, this work of activism, would go right over people's heads. And no one could understand that she was telling her own story. She was owning her story. This was her way of freeing herself. And so she continues in this vein. And her poems become so popular. The Wheatleys invite the local people, many of them of the higher uh, upper echelons of that area to come hear her poetry. And if, before long, they've collected this poetry and they decide to publish this book of poetry written by Phyllis Wheatley with her name on it, not taking it, but, but keeping preserving her ownership of these works. Thomas Jefferson finds out about this po- poet, poet, and writes about how this, it's impossible that she could have the intelligence to write this. Someone else must have written this. And the Wheatleys don't back down. And they invite their friends to hear her read her poetry, to see her poetry, as to, to prove that she wrote it. And then they ask their friends to sign off. Yes, she wrote this poetry. And one of the people who signed off that Phyllis Wheatley wrote these poems was John Hancock. So when we tell these stories, we're not ignoring Thomas Jefferson as one of the founding fathers and one of the authors of our great foundational documents, but we're also not hiding the fact that he saw black people as inferior and never came around to changing that opinion. Matter of fact, was a great proponent of telling people we are inferior and we have to understand that we have to own that and accept that was his mentality. And knowing that does not take away from things he did contribute to human life. But we can also look at this story and see, well, who was not joining in with that type of thinking, the Wheatleys, John Hancock, who I believe owned slaves himself, but there was this wrestling, this struggle to own up to what was true. And so Terrence, Phyllis Wheatley are all connected with this classical tradition that was foundational to how all of America was educated, even the enslaved people. I want to read this letter that the Wheatleys put in her collection of poems, and this is what they say. As it has been repeatedly suggested to the publisher by persons who have seen the manuscript, that numbers would be ready to suspect they were not really the writings of Phyllis. He has procured the following attestation from the most respectable characters in Boston, that none might have the least ground for disputing their original. We need to be telling more stories like this. They didn't have to do this. They owned her, they were their masters. They could have just settled for allowing her to be seen as inferior or not the author of her poetry. There are so many stories about this from the beginnings of America and onward of of white people not going along with this mentality. One more thing I want to share with you. Phyllis Wheatley wrote a poem to George Washington. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you to look it up. You can find it online. And. She writes this poem to George Washington, encouraging him, letting him know, I hope the gods and goddesses are with you. I hear you've been appointed to be the leader in this revolutionary war. And she is excited about him fighting for freedom. And and her hope that America would be free was connected to her hope that maybe in them fighting for their freedom, they would see the need for her to have her freedom, that they would come in contact with that shared human experience of desiring freedom. It doesn't happen though, for quite a long time. But she doesn't just do that. She writes poems, even after her freedom, she writes poems, articles. She uses her gift of writing as a a work of activism, a desire to see black people to be free. But she writes this poem to George Washington and he writes her back. And this is how he ends his poem. You can also find his letter to her online. But he ends it by saying, if you should ever come to Cambridge or near headquarters, I shall be happy to see a person so favored by the muses. And then he ends it with, I am with great respect, your obedient, humble servant. Yes, George Washington owned slaves. For many years, I've been very bitter at him for that. And and I want to say something right here. Anyone listening to me, can you blame a black person being bitter at those who own their ancestors? My maiden name is McKinney. You can look it up in the archives. There is a McKinney plantation where my ancestors were held captive and where my family grew. And there are testimonies from my great, great ancestors of the pain they had on that plantation, of sitting behind a barn and hiding and weeping and crying before the Lord that he would deliver them from the pain of slavery. Stories of my great grandmother's master saying to her, when I get to heaven, if you make it to heaven, I might let you work in the kitchen. These are my stories. So can you blame a black person for for holding on to a bitterness and unforgiveness about that. Honestly, without the help of the Holy Spirit, without something otherworldly outside of yourself, I don't think it's humanly possible not to hold on to that. And I've been on a journey seeking God to help me to forgive, but to also look history in the face and to find the true stories that reveal some type of struggle within the moral compass of white people of that time who were trying to break away from that but found themselves a victim held captive too by racism and slavery in another way. I like to think of the American story as not blacks against whites, but all of us who knew this was wrong, all of us who understood truth, goodness, virtue and beauty truly understood it, not as some elitist white supremacist thought, but that believe that all men are created equal and that according to God's word, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. And we all believe that for God so loved the world and that we all believe that God is no respecter of persons, that in our flesh, we all have been a wrestling through this. And I see George Washington, although he was cowardly and didn't speak up like he should have, he was wrestling. And I hope you can receive that. So we move forward from George Washington and Phyllis Wheatley. And we now look at Frederick Douglass, who was sold away from his mom, put on another plantation when he was just a baby. But yet his mom, who was just 10 or so miles away from that plantation, when she'd get out the field, she would sneak off that plantation and walk to put her son to bed. To sleep. And she did that until he was five. Frederick Douglass says he has only a few memories of his mom, but he knows his mom would walk miles and miles in the evening by herself to put him to sleep. And I often wonder what she was talking to him about what she, what she was doing. And then I found out her name was Harriet Bailey was the only literate black person in her area in Maryland. And she was a woman of high intelligence, they say. And so it makes us wonder, was she reading to him? Was she maybe just telling him the stories that she knew from her reading? She planted seeds of intelligence and curiosity, in him. She died when he was five, and he was left alone on this plantation. And then another woman comes along to continue the work that his mother was putting into him. The master's wife began to teach him how to read when he was about six. And then the master makes her stop. He told uh, Frederick Douglass and the wife that if you teach a black man. A black woman, any person of color to read. And he didn't say those words that nicely. He used the N word. I don't even like to repeat it. If you teach that using the N word to read, he'll be forever discontent. He'll be unfit to be a slave. And Frederick Douglass said in his mind at six years old, at whatever cost, I'm going to learn to read. He does. He successfully teaches himself to read by using all types of tricks talking to little, uh, some of the master's children and the children around that area. Hey, I bet I can write that letter better than you can. And they would get mad thinking, you know, who does this enslaved person think he is thinking he can write better than me? And they would show him, look, I draw this letter better than you. And Frederick Douglass would copy it. And that's how he taught himself to read. One of the ways he taught himself to read. By the time he was 12, he had mastered reading and writing and speaking English in the most articulate way. And he had noticed in, in his engagement with white children who were coming to and from school around the plantation that there was one textbook that they all used, And it was called The Columbian Orator, which is an anthology, a collection of works from the canon and from classics, excerpts from the great, from Cicero and Cato and different um, dialogues. And there was one dialogue in this text that Frederick Douglass purchased from a Methodist bookshop called a dialogue between a master and his slave, where the slave was able to convince the master to set him free. Why did he go to the Methodist bookshop? Why did he want the Colombian orator? Because there's parts of history we don't tell that we don't understand. We just kind of have everyone, white people are racist, black people have been oppressed, which is true and not. There are nuances and exceptions to this story that are very important that we bring to the surface so we all have a healthy perspective on this. He chose the Colombian orator, the same textbook that Harriet Beecher Stowe was educated with because it was the main textbook of early American schools. Well, why did he buy it from a Methodist bookshop? Frederick Douglass was smart. The Methodists were known to be against slavery. Why? As a religion, why were they like that? Because their founder, John Wesley, was vocal, adamant about the sin of enslaving human beings. He preached it from the pulpit. He wrote about it. He was utterly disgusted by it. And he did not hide it. He was a man of God. And so this Methodist bookstore, Frederick Douglass knew, if I go there, they will sell me this book, even though it's illegal to do so. And he was right. You can find that online as well. There's a documentary, a news documentary about it on YouTube about how Frederick Douglass got his hands on the Colombian orator. Okay. And so he says, right at the moment, I thought I would forever be a slave. I was in this dark pit because of it. I found this. I got this book, the Columbian orator. And it spoke light to my soul. It spoke to the very heart of my pain. And when he read this dialogue between a master and his slave, he found this key. If I learn rhetoric, if I learn oratory, if I model the way Cicero, the great statesman spoke, maybe I can do the same. Maybe I convince those who own slaves to set them free. And that is how his journey began. He does it. He's only 12 then. It took him eight years to be physically set free, but he set his mind free first through the works of classics. And he comes back. He doesn't run off to Canada and live happily ever after. We've heard this story before, right? He stays here to be a great statesman. And and this Colombian orator, why was this even created? Where does this come from? Well, if we look at ancient educational philosophy, we find a man by the name of Quintilian who was a classical educator. And he believed he wrote this book called Institutio Oratorio. Hope I'm saying these words right. And he believed that at infancy, children should be taught how to read and write and speak as a way to be good statesmen and women good human beings who use rhetoric and oratory as a tool, as a weapon even to fight against the injustices that often arise in human led societies, because we're fallible. We're all imperfect. None of us are without flaw. None of us, none of us are without sin. And so Quintilian thought, if we teach our young people this, they won't just sit back and let things happen that are wrong, but they'll use the, the, the skill of oratory and rhetoric to speak, to convince, to use logic, to convince the human leadership to change. And that's why the Colombian orator was created. It's based on the philosophy of Quintilian. That's why Cicero played a big part in that text, because Quintilian thought, even though he wasn't necessarily a big fan of Cicero, he did value the way the man spoke. And so there we get from ancient times into early American education, the Colombian orator, which educates most of America, but Frederick Douglass took it for himself. And so we have Terrence, we have Phyllis Wheatley, we have Frederick Douglass. And he works his way up in the abolitionist movement, becomes a well-known speaker, develops some type of a connection with Abraham Lincoln. I'm still trying to figure out, was it a friendship? What was it? Abraham Lincoln says to Frederick Douglass at his second inaugural address and reception, Frederick Douglass, my friend. I'm not sure where Frederick Douglass felt, though. I know he often challenged him, but they definitely had a connection. And and Abraham Lincoln would call on Frederick Douglass for thoughts and advice on how to navigate creating this union. And Frederick Douglass was influential in many of the decisions Abraham Lincoln made. He wasn't a perfect man. Abraham Lincoln did say things like, if I could save the union without freeing the slaves, I would but if you follow Abraham Lincoln's speeches from his early days in politics to his second inaugural address and that second inaugural address was his last main address he gave just a barely a month before he was murdered and John Wilkes Booth was in the audience when Abraham Lincoln gave this speech for his second inauguration where he says the civil war's tragedy is God's judgment, God's punishment on America for what they had done through slavery. That's a very different man from if I could save the union without freeing the slaves, I would. The sad part about it is he was just starting to begin to put policies and things in place during this brief time that we call Reconstruction to bring the newly freed people into participating in in our democracy. And and he began to lay out that plan in that second inaugural address on what he was going to do. And John Wilkes Booth made the decision at that address to murder Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln was killed before we could see his evolution. This is why I I really ache in my heart when people discount Abraham Lincoln because of the racist things he said. I'm not denying that. But I, I can tell people aren't reading his speeches, his writings like his letters. He doesn't have a formal book, but people have collected his speeches, I think, in letters. And you can see this picture of a man who was wrestling. He was much braver than George Washington was, though. He was willing to lay it all on the line to the point where even the night before he was murdered, he saw himself in a coffin. He had a dream about being dead. And the next day he was gone. What a a sacrifice. And yet we discount him instead of honoring the evolution this man was going through to free himself from racism and another kind, another form of slavery. And Andrew Johnson comes in. He begins to close down the Freedmen's Bureau and all the agencies and policies that Abraham Lincoln was trying to put into place to bring black people into participating in our democracy. Andrew Johnson pulls out the soldiers that Abraham Lincoln had sent in to protect black people because when we were freed, white people were murdering us, murdering us at massacre level. And Abraham Lincoln sent in soldiers to protect us. Andrew Johnson pulled those all away and he ushered in Jim Crow. And he began this slow process. He wasn't president long, but he set a miracle on this slow process of removing classical learning and literacy away from the black community. So we wouldn't have the knowledge needed to be equal participants in this democracy, to to be the statesman that Quintilian, the ancient educator, wanted all humans to be, where we could use rhetoric and logic and oratory skills to speak to the injustices of society. Andrew Johnson began to take that away from us. And we've been on that path, all of us, fighting on that path ever since. May we all get back to where Abraham Lincoln left off when he was taken from this world and pick up that mantle. And I'll end here talking about Martin Luther King, who thankfully was educated in the same classical schools That we're talking about before they had been completely removed from American public education. At just 16, he gets into college. I believe he was still a teenager when he writes this essay in college about civil disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. And then he says in his autobiography that the philosophers of the canon the writers in the classical time period formed the early philosophical foundations of the civil rights movement. Can you imagine? Classics and the works of the canon being foundational to the very thing that has freed us from slavery, from the oppression of black people after slavery. Martin Luther King does not hide that these helped him form his philosophy for the work that he did. And he forms this relationship with John F. Kennedy, who whenever Martin Luther King found himself in prison, Coretta Scott King could call any one of the Kennedys and ask them to help her free her husband from jail. And they would do it. They would take a phone call from this black woman, the wife of Martin Luther King, Many people don't understand that. John F. Kennedy also wasn't perfect. Like George Washington, like Abraham Lincoln, he too was wrestling between knowing to do what's right, but wanting to be a president and still cater to his white base who weren't quite ready to receive black people as equal. But he was trying, he was wrestling. And he was right on the cusp of signing the civil rights bill of 1964 when he was murdered. He, he had the courage that George Washington didn't have. He was able to almost get to that point where all forms of Jim Crow were removed from American policies and government so that I can sit where I want on a bus. I can go to whatever amusement park and park and library and school and store and restaurant that I want to. He was about to sign that bill. And just like Abraham Lincoln, who was trying to make America do what it was supposed to do, he was murdered. And his replacement, his vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who had up to this point of John F. Kennedy's murder, had been very racist in his thinking, in his policies, had been a supporter of Jim Crow, would openly call us the N-word, so moved by the murder of John F. Kennedy, stepped away from what he had traditionally been doing and said, I'm going to make sure that bill gets passed. This is what he wanted before he died and he had the courage to break away from all of those people that he typically was speaking to about racist policies. He was a little bit different than Andrew Johnson who ended what Abraham Lincoln was trying to do. Lyndon B. Johnson made the very courageous choice to continue what John F. Kennedy was trying to do. And all the while, and there you see Lyndon B. Johnson signing this bill of 1964. And next to him, you see Martin Luther King there with him as he signs that bill. Everything that Martin Luther King was trying to do led to this point. Martin Luther King says how much it used to grieve him that he couldn't take his children to an amusement park. And everything he did was so that his children could ride on a roller coaster. My children now can ride on a roller coaster. And when he was doing his nonviolent protests and nonviolent sit-ins and all of these white ministers who like Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Johnson were on the wrong side of this fight. When they began to rebuke Martin Luther King for these nonviolent peaceful protests, saying he was disobeying authority. He was sinning against God for not respecting the authority and that he should just wait until things take care of themselves and respect the authority. His first thing he said is, I'm surprised that you would rebuke me for protesting my oppression as opposed to rebuking those who are oppressing me and my people. And then he says something else. He lessened, I'm not going to stop. Because he says, I must be a non-violent gadfly. I must be a non-violent gadfly. Irritating the leadership until they do what's right. Which is a direct quote from Plato's Apology, who felt the same way. That the society Socrates was living in was following myths and allowing those myths to determine how they're related to humanity. And Socrates refused to do that. And he lost his life for that. But he said, I'm gonna be a a gadfly in society. And so Martin Luther King picks up on that and is inspired by that thinking and says, but he adds the word nonviolent. And he says, I'm gonna be a nonviolent gadfly until change comes. And he was given the opportunity before he died, unlike everyone else, to see change come. And at the foundation of this story were my ancestors, your white ancestors. We came together around classic texts, around the works of the canon, and we had this engagement with these texts, trying to understand our human existence. We came around together, around these texts, trying to make America live up to what it was supposed to be, what it was designed to be. This is our shared heritage. This is our story. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to what I like to call narrative of hope. May we listen to this story and think about this story and continue your research on this story. And may it give us hope and guidance on how to chart our way forward. I'll look forward to you joining me next time for Reclaiming Our Canon.